mathematical reviews started in 1940, and so there wasn't any electronic stuff. Uh, it actually was a sort of follow-up in an earlier publication in Germany called Zentralblatt for Mathematik that started in 1930. That actually pretty much set the model for what math reviews came in 1940, that you have a paper, you get it, you, you index the bibliographic information, you send it out to a reviewer, you get it back. Exactly how those steps worked was quite different, but the, the, the kind of ultimate intellectual result was more or less the same. Math reviews started in the 40s exactly because of all the issues in Germany that led up to World War II. And the odd thing historically is that the founding editor was the same person in both cases, Otto Neugebauer, was the founding editor of Zentralblatt, and he was the founding editor of Mathematical Reviews. And he wasn't Jewish, but he did, in some sense, sort of flee Germany, but just because of all these evil circumstances. And he was here at Brown University at the time that it was founded. And so it was a, a realization that as the literature grew in the old days, really in all the sciences, not just mathematics, how do you know something's happening? Well, you have this circle of friends and people you correspond with and meetings you go to. And, and you know, that was kind of their version of Facebook at that time. It was really about people. You, you knew that so-and-so was working on stuff that you were interested in. So you'd go to find his, his or her publications and wherever they were. And everybody sort of recognized that at some point it, 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 there was just too much stuff that you could rely on these personal acquaintances there. So the idea was that you needed a place where you could sort of reliably look and see what exactly has been published, who did it, what's it about, and so forth. And that's what inspired paper math reviews. Paper math reviews continued to exist in 2012. Once MathSciNet came on board in 1996, its subscriptions just sort of kept going down and down, and MathSciNet kept going up and up. So it, it was sort of just a tipping point. At some point, you had to decide, well, we're just not going to do it anymore. So I'm Norm Rickard. I'm the managing editor of Mathematical uh, Reviews. It with a little bit less tap dance. Oh, dear. Yeah. Let, yep. yeah, I'm, I'm a tap dancer. Uh, I'm, I'm the managing editor of Mathematical Reviews. I've been here about 15 years. In uh, my previous life, I was a mathematician. This is Relatively Prime. Reviews in the mathematical domain. I... I'm Samuel Hansen, and welcome to The Cycle of Mathematics, Episode 3, Orange Volumes on a Shelf, on the Internet. I'm very big, and not just because I'm an old fart, in saying that there ought to be this historical connection to mathematical reviews. You don't want to lose that name. Here are all the paper math reviews forever. Starting in 1940, that's volume one, number one, and proceeding up to the bitter end, which was what we called 2012M. There were 12 issues, but we skipped L because it looks like a one. And 2012M is down there. And like I was saying, there there is some sense in which if you pull down volume one, number one, and look at it, so there it is, there's the cover of it. This is what people got. Uh, the, the ultimate 
sense of what you see in Mass Signet is not all that different. The author, title, journal, paging, a review that somebody out in the world has, has um, created, written, and, and in terms of what you would do as a mathematician, if you're a number theorist, you're primarily interested in the things here. You might have some interest in, you know, probability and statistics associated with it, and there's a lot of overlap with algebra, but it might well be that you as a number theorist, when you got this thing, are just going to focus on that particular piece. In the old days, it was very common, it was certainly true in the department where I got my uh, PhD, that in some room, a library, a coffee room, or something like that, you'd see these orange volumes. You know, the new one had come, and oh, it was very exciting. You go to the shelf and pull it off and leaf through it and look at the stuff to kind of see what's going on. We hope people think of mass sign out there. You know, the world has changed considerably about how people think about information resources like that, so. What actually happens uh, when a paper comes here. Right, so there, I'll, I'll sketch it out before we walk around so to give some kind of perspective. The whole operation here is in some sense sort of a conveyor belt. We have work that's going through every day, and but it isn't exactly a linear conveyor belt in the sense of, you know, I don't know, a chocolate factory or whatever, that you can start here and follow one thing, that particular items can sort of get lost for periods of time. So everybody has piles of stuff on their desk representing those individual items, but, but it would be hard to find one item and literally walk through it. You have to kind of simulate that. The, the upstream, the initial entry part is the department called acquisitions, and it's a little bit like a, a library, say at a university, where, where the acquisitions librarians are always looking for material to bring into the library. All right, everybody, dress up. Do we have the cameras coming here? Well, I'll see. No the microphone, no camera. First, uh, if you could tell me your name and position. Kathy Walcott, and I am the manager of acquisitions. So what we do is get the materials into the building, um, and we do this a number of ways. We work first with the editors who select materials for inclusion, and once the editors have indicated that they would like something to arrive, we then work with more, more than 500 sources to get those materials in the building. Um, we receive materials on a complementary basis, and so we work very hard to build good relationships with all of our sources so that we can ensure that the materials are coming in and they understand why they're giving those materials to us. We routinely get things that, that present a challenge. So uh, we like to have articles delivered as single articles electronically, right? Because we're going to send them to the editors and they may disposition each article in a different way. So there may be a different treatment. Five articles may go to five different reviewers. So we like them in nice, discrete, separate files, but that's not always possible. So sometimes we get one PDF file that includes all of the articles and that then presents quite a problem for us. Sometimes we end up printing them, so we're actually taking a step backwards once we receive these electronic materials. We turn a little bit into a print shop in those cases. When I came here, this building, this, this wall wasn't here at all, and uh, it was completely open all the way to the naked ceiling up there and it was floor-to-ceiling steel shelves kind of running this way all through there. 
and it was what we called the cemetery. And the idea was the, the, the kind of paper going through the system that you're thinking about, they were all paper in those days. It really did literally move through the system, except when you send it off to the reviewer. But the sort of husk of it, what we called the spine, you, we actually literally cut things out of these paper things with a paper cutter, and, and the, but the spine is left over and it kind of tells things about the wrappers. That would end up here and be laterally filed, mostly by journals, and of course those piles would grow over time and then we used to have a huge amount of space next door where you do what called weeding you take the oldest stuff and move it next door and of course that was growing and and then it, even again since i've been here which is not all that long in math reviews terms all of that became predominantly electronic and the need for all those shelves just disappeared and so we finally got the conference room we needed <laughs> for years so That journal issue has been acquired by the acquisitions department. It's been put in the system. It's been looked at at an editor, decided whether it's in or out, and if it's in, what kind of treatment it is. There's a whole classification system called the Mathematics Subject Classification, which consists of things that look like 11J72 that describe exactly what kind of math is in it. And that's all been put on it. Yeah, so this is Marissa. She's the manager of the cataloging department. Samuel, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, it's, so, uh, could I ask you just a couple quick questions? Sure. Uh, first, could you give me name and intro info, basic? Uh, Marissa Cathcart. I'm the cataloging librarian and manager of the cataloging department here at MR. In running the cataloging department, a lot of what I do is checking up the author IDs, making sure that the authority work that we do uh, with the authors is correct. Uh, honestly, a lot of the other stuff that I do is uh, tech support. One of the reasons that I was hired uh, as a catalog librarian is to get the department more up to date and in sync with what libraries are doing so that our patrons here for MR can see that and segue it a little bit more with uh, what libraries are doing and having that um, piece of their bibliographic description within our database have it be visually similar from what they see out there within their libraries. You can get all kinds of stuff in Google. You can get a lot of what we have on Google, but uh, it, it's not packaged in this consistent way. And that's kind of sort of traditional library standards and goals and so forth that uh, we still take very seriously. Consistency is the main point. Without consistency it's just a bunch of you know, metadata floating around. <laughs> and so if it's not consistent, what's the point of doing it in the first place? One of the things that we pride ourselves in is the unique identification of authors, which is a big deal now because, you know, just saying somebody's name, there may be a lot of people with my name or your name or whoever's name. And so the cataloging department is working long and hard to figure out exactly who they are. Uh, and so you are in charge of IT? Yes. Uh, name? Daryl Hozil, IT manager. Is it uh, basic IT or is there is something a little bit different about working here as opposed to uh, a, a different type of shop? Oh, I believe that um, 
any small shop that has an internal IT department would probably be have a similar type of mix where you have to do hardware, software, and custom work internally. So Ada is a piece of software that's designed to help the personnel in the cataloging department identify authors uniquely and associate them with the papers that they published. So Ada was designed around a main program that first goes and analyzes these records and does a best match and then users come along and actually verify those matches and then deal with the cases which are difficult okay. to handle. Well, thank, thank you very much. You're welcome. Then that paper has its data keyed in it. Kim Taylor, manager of RDS. Okay. Stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> They've cataloged it with you know, all this writing here and pagination and all that stuff. And she's working with a, well, it's pretty old-fashioned, but it does what they want to do, an interface where she just keyboards it all in. So, I mean, quite literally, no fancy stuff about how it gets there. And, uh, some of these people have been keyboarding a long time, some more than others, and are just very, very good at it and very fast. So. Don't let us make you nervous or anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the daily bikes. That's where you would come up with the papers. Um, that's how the papers get the mess signed. That. Yeah. And, and that's how they can do their author work down in cataloging because they can't really do it until the author's names and their institutions and all that other stuff is already in. And then the program can run that they actually look at. That box will go back to cataloging acquisitions and then when everything's been corrected, everything's good to go, we get the box back. So that, this is a sort of daily unit of work. I mean, every there are many boxes. There isn't just one because they're all at a different stage. But the idea is whatever it is you do on that box gets done in one day. It isn't always literally true, but that's sort of the goal. This is, this is the most diverse department in the building in terms of it would take the longest to describe all the pieces of what they actually do. and they're always evolving and sort of accumulating new pieces like the, the downloading that Kathy was talking about of journals. A lot of that happens here where they're going and monitoring the websites and figuring out what the new papers are and downloading them. And there aren't, there aren't any really magic bullets about downloading them. They're doing them one at, a, one at a time. I mean, they have an interface that makes that easier, but they're looking at the site, here's the table of contents, I want that paper, I want that paper, I want that paper, and they're actually doing that. Once, once that paper has had all these elements signed off on, the lever is pulled, the first stage is done, and then this paper, something fairly recent that happened, it used to be that the paper actually associated with it was a piece of paper and went into this elaborate system of pigeonholes. This collection of pigeonholes used to be more exciting. These are the papers, well, I say are, they used to be the ones that were going to be sent out for review. This is this whole classification system. Every one of these two-digit numbers means something. Every one of the editors over there has a few of these numbers. Most of the papers now 
actually show up in an interface that they have for for sending, figuring out which reviewer to send them to. So all you see here are kind of the special cases of the things that are literally in paper. But it used to be if we'd come down, and this wasn't very long ago, that you'd see potentially enormous piles of paper and all of that sort of uh, gotten sucked into their computers except for these little residues that are hard to do electronically. My name is Michael Jones. I'm an associate editor at Mathematical Reviews. Uh, we make classification decisions so that um, every editor has certain areas that they're in charge of. Um, for example, I'm in charge of uh, math subjects classification area 91. Uh, that includes game theory and mathematical finance. Uh, and then I'm also in charge of certain other areas too. Uh, for us to make other types of decisions, editorial decisions about what makes it into our database, uh, we make those decisions based on those math subject classification areas. Our first work is that library work that first says, what is the content of this paper? Then we make coverage decisions, which is, uh, will the paper go out to review or will we have some sort of in-house review, often maybe the author's summary, because there's only so many reviewers in the world. We have about 17,000 reviewers and over 100,000 items being added to the database every year. Uh, so we make those coverage decisions as well. Once we make those decisions, we pair up papers with reviewers. They write reviews and we edit the reviews when they come back. Uh, we have copy editors who do some of that editing as well, uh, but I'm a content editor and content editors, we check the veracity of the review and make sure that it corresponds with the paper. I don't think that anyone can understand the volume. Uh, it's really volume. Every aspect of what I do, I enjoy. I enjoy making the decisions. I enjoy seeing the articles as they come in. I enjoy pairing them up with reviewers. I like editing reviews. But it is impossible to understand the volume of these papers and how quickly you must make these decisions until you're doing it. Uh, so the, the thing that was the surprise for me more than anything else was the volume, though there was a second. And the second was just the range of the mathematical literature, not just in terms of topic, uh, but also sort of a what gets published all over the place. Some of that's a uh, question of quality as well. Some of it's also just sort of where mathematics is. You know, you think of mathematics as, a, as an international enterprise, but there are all sorts of journals that you had never heard of before because maybe um, your library doesn't subscribe to them or you just hadn't uh, seen something referenced in it. But there's mathematics being done everywhere and you know, every country has their you know, mathematical framework and way to publish results as well. And what's really amazing is that we cover all of that, or if, if not all of it, we cover a whole lot of it. And we're constantly adding new journals to the database as well uh, and expanding our coverage. And uh, just the size and the scope of it all, besides that individual volume in terms of the range of where what mathematics is and where it's being done is really incredible. So not all of mathematics is done in English. Uh, right, <laughs> right. It's it's sort of a declining percentage that isn't. There was it, when I was a graduate student, it was natural for students to usually have to demonstrate at least you know some kind of reading proficiency in two languages, and I think most graduate programs have given that up. There's a lot less in French. It used to be that it was pretty essential to read French. There was there's a lot less in German. There's still a fair amount in Russian, but even that is sort of a declining percentage that. 
that more of it is either just turning into English language publications or sometimes there are these sort of parallel Russian journals and English translation journals. But, but it is a constant challenge. Many of the editors actually speak Russian, so that's a big plus. The Chinese stuff with that, the uh, one editorial associate that I was talking about is a Chinese mathematician. He does sort of a kind of pre-scanning in terms of selecting things and doing some title translation for people that helps a lot. But, but it, is, it is a challenge. And in, in some ways, what you're doing is, re, if you send it out to a review, you're, we, of course, select a reviewer who actually can read it, and we're relying on the reviewer to have sort of the actual understanding rather than the real superficial understanding of what it's about. I don't know the actual percentages right now, but I, I know that even in the time that I've been here, the proportion that isn't English is much smaller than it was. It, it really is true that right now English is what Latin used to be to the scholarly world. It, it is the universal language, and so which makes it a lot easier for us. Then the paper is shipped out to an actual reviewer. In, in some sense, I, I shouldn't say it goes into a black hole, but it goes into this area outside our control because it's not in the building anymore. Somebody out there is working on it. So th there is this sort of funny hiatus in terms of our involvement where there's not much we can do until it actually comes back. My name's Tracy Bennett. I am the manager of the copy editors. I am guiding and training and organizing the time of 18 copy editors. And our main function is to proofread, copy edit, and do the references within the galleys that represent the reviews we're publishing on MathSciNet. Is there any uh, sort of uh, interesting things that come from copy editing mathematics as opposed to oh, uh, yeah. copy editing, you know, it takes a lot literature. longer to learn. I would say that only two of our copy editors have a lot of experience with math, and the other 16 have liberal arts degrees. So their background isn't necessarily strong in the mathematical uh, knowledge. So we have to train a lot of lingo, jargon, you know, adjectives functioning as nouns, nouns functioning as adjectives within sentences. Is, unfamiliar at first and becomes quite familiar after a couple of years. Working with equations as if they were sentences in and of themselves or possibly a noun within a larger sentence of prose. So being flexible with how mathematics is fitting in with the grammar of a sentence. Just seeing the same things over and over again, it's almost like learning by flashcards. You can recognize when something isn't right, even if you don't understand the mathematics. Like a symbol appears out of nowhere that, like a variable appears out of nowhere that isn't defined or hasn't been uh, mentioned before, and we'll question that. Once that process of editing it is done, then the final lever is pulled. It shows up in MathSciNet the next day, and then we're done. That thing has had its path. So if we're, if we can take, I take you back to my office and find your stuff there. Yeah. And thank you very much Absolutely. for doing this. It's always fun to talk about math reviews, and you know you have to promise to rush home and put your profile picture in. <laughs>
And that is all the time that we have for the third episode of the Relatively Prime miniseries, Cycle of Mathematics. I want to thank everyone at Mathematical Reviews slash MathSciNet for all their time and being willing to put up with me being in their hair for most of a day. And an extra special thank you to Norm Rickert, who set all of this up and gave me the tour which became this episode. Remember, the next time that you want to find some mathematics, head on over to MathSciNet. They got your back. And they got some great reviews. And... I can almost guarantee that you will find what you're looking for through them. I also want to thank Chris Sabrisky for the music that you've heard in this episode. You can find more of their music over at SoundCloud or on the show page for this episode on relprime.com. But most of all, I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon. Without y'all, this show just wouldn't exist. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you want to join them in supporting the show, head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or relprime.com slash support. If you support the show at the bonus feed level or above, you will get access to Norm and I talking about what the building in Ann Arbor that currently houses MR used to be. And trust me, it's actually super, super interesting. You want to hear it. And in order to, you just got to go click that support button. Finally, Relatively Prime is created under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. So please, feel free to use this audio however you wish. Just make sure that you say you got those awesome, awesome sounds from Relatively Prime. Thank you all for listening. And, as always, have yourself a math week. Thank you.